0: Euro edition. This is going to be the last of the Renaissance units, and we will be briefly discussing the Northern Renaissance before we get into the Reformation next week. All right, welcome to Northern Renaissance, uh, Christian humanism, and the art of the North. When we look at the differences between the Italian and Northern Renaissance and the way that Christian humanists express themselves in the North, there is a significant shift for them In regards to the intent, purpose, and their audience, many of the Northern Renaissance authors, painters, um, artists, they all are going to be strictly working through a, a concept of Christian humanism. I wouldn't say strictly, I would just say it is a common theme that they are working through Christian humanism, which values some of the same things that Italy valued, some of that classical styling is going to be very common. A guy like Erasmus, which you guys have already learned about, or at least have some background knowledge if you did uh, read A World Lit Only by Fire. Erasmus does a good job of keeping a very strong classical tone, but he also is incredibly critical of the heirs within the Catholic Church. So At times he's going in hard on popes and at times he's going after monks and cardinals and anyone that is really kind of usurping the authority of the church and in turn just kind of doing whatever they want because they have the authority of the church. And Erasmus gets away with it mostly because he's so good, um, but secondly because he's somewhat distanced away from Rome. And it's the same thing with Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More is a devout Catholic. He doesn't ever really go towards Protestantism to the point where he's willing to die uh, when Henry VIII decides to create his own church. But at the same time, Sir Thomas More is also incredibly critical of a lot of the ills within the Catholic Church in Italy. So what you see is that's significantly different is that in Italy, And this is what I would do in your notes, is I would maybe have this short comparison for yourself. I would just put Italy equals the idealism of the classical era. The idealism of the classical era. The North is an exercise in realism. Let me say that again. Italy is an exercise in the idealism of the classics. The North is an exercise in realism. And it does have a classical tone. So, the difference between idealism and realism let's just take Michelangelo. In Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, and let's take the Last Judgment on the front, his giant Greek boxers are not realistic to an average person, but they are idealistic, right? It's the perfect concept of what man could be in the north i'm going to show you the last judgment which is the same subject and it's going to be incredibly different in the way it is portrayed and presented to its audience in the south you have these jacked huge greek boxers in the north they're average everyday looking people and quite honestly you're also going to see a lot more crowd scenes Uh, you'll see a lot more uh, middle and lower class individuals within paintings things that you would never generally see in Italy. In Italy, what is ironic is you guys read that humanism packet the other day, and Bruni writes about how amazing Florence is, but we have very few paintings during the period of the Renaissance of Florence and the people that live there. Does that seem ironic? Like, Florence is amazing, but you don't get to see it. And in the north there's a number of different paintings of different cities throughout that time period where you see all of the crowd, you see average people, middle and lower class, you see wealthy within the same picture or painting, uh, a big landscape, the whole thing. We know almost exactly what Amsterdam probably looked like in that period. But from a painting perspective, you almost never see Florence with average people in the Renaissance. So it, it definitely has a very different set of values Um, And I think that that is one thing that you can draw as a a strict separation between the two. Remember, in the word appendage, does anyone know what appendage means? Yeah? Yeah, so it's attached to you. And if you're thinking that the Northern Renaissance is an appendage of the Italian Renaissance, you're grossly mistaken. They're different. The, The Italians are their own thing. And quite honestly the northerners are mostly looking at the Italians and thinking, y'all are going to hell. This is a gross uh, use of misconduct. Uh, you're doing whatever you want. And then eventually in the north, you get Martin Luther and the, Re- and the Protestants and, Ca- and Calvin. And then King Henry breaks away. And you have this whole Protestant movement all happening in the north. And many of those people are looking down at the Italians and thinking, you've lost your way. We are the new soul of Christianity. And that becomes a a contentious point going forward. And we'll get there when we get to next week with the Reformation and how that is going to shape uh, politics, religion, um, overseas trade, uh, competitions for overseas trade, because now you're competing for souls. Essentially, you have the Catholic Church sending missionaries to the New World. You have Protestants going and setting up colonies later. Um, And the Catholic Church is feeling like we're losing members So they respond very quickly in three different ways. Missionaries, uh, they do it with art called the Baroque era, which is happening after the uh, Renaissance. And then they start universities. St. Ignatius is tasked with the Jesuit order to start universities. And if you know much about our Bay Area, across the bridge, St. Ignatius down the street is a Jesuit school, as is a number of Jesuit schools, high schools in California alone, Um, not to mention all of the universities, Jesuit universities throughout the world which all really started right around the Reformation because they're trying to get people back into the Catholic Church. So here's another just quick uh, bit of characteristics specific to the Northern Renaissance. Like I said before, there is a strict interest in more of a communal space than the idealism of let's just make a statue about David or let's just make a statue of Jesus and Mary. Instead, in the North, if it were a statue, which, quite honestly, generally in in the north, they're not statues. They're either woodcuts, uh, paintings. Um, that's generally what you see in the north. You see some statue work and whatnot, but you're you're mostly confined to what you can find easily, and marble in the north is going to cost a lot more money because you got to move it, and marble generally comes in large blocks, so. If you're gonna move a 20-foot block like Michelangelo used with David, and you're gonna move it a multi, you know, a number of different countries to go have an artist work with it, that's gonna cost you a lot of money. So instead, you just do a woodcut because wood is more prevalent in Germany um, or in the north. So you're you're really kind of only using the materials that you have readily available to you. Now, obviously. This is part of the reason why if you rewind back to the Greco-Roman era and you look at a uh, building like the Pantheon. The Pantheon has solid stone uh, columns that are brought in from hundreds of miles away and put at the Pantheon, but they did it with slave labor and, and probably in the process lost thousands of lives just moving those stones. And if you look at how big they are, they're like 30 foot stones. They're huge. They're taller than the David, uh, and they hold up the Pantheon. And so without that uh, slave labor, it's difficult to, to move art mediums like that. The other thing is you saw see a lot more emphasis on middle and lower class life. It's a more Christian theme, um, and it's a lot more preachy than in the South. You also have a element of domestic interiors. What does that mean? What is a domestic interior? Yeah, the inside of someone's house. So what this is going to, I'm going to show you this on the next slide here. Van Eyck does a number of portraits and in a lot of his portraits, he just utilizes the inside of someone's house to tell a story about that family. And so... In the Italian Renaissance, all you would do to make it Italian is you'd cut out the house part, push them back against the background, and now it's an Italian portrait. But if you pull it back, put them in the middle of a house and show the domestic interior, now it's Northern. So it's, it's very different. It, it allows the artist to actually tell a bit more of a story about the person that they are painting. And I'll show you that as you go. Now, clearly in this piece... These people are probably very wealthy merchants. As you can tell, the back of this uh, background is a canal with a ship coming in. So we're assuming that they probably are merchant wealth. You can tell by what they're wearing that they are very wealthy as well, because these robes are not exactly cheap. And the intricate detail, even in his robe there, would probably tell us that he's also very wealthy. Um. Do you notice the realism, the color, the domestic interior, the background like it's all incredibly accurate for a period in 1435. In 1435 in Italy, we're still talking about Masaccio's early, you know, expulsion from the garden. Remember the very first painting that I showed you with Adam and Eve coming out of the garden? I was like, this is decent. Like, yeah, it's early Renaissance work. It's got some perspective, it's a little realistic at the same time in the north they're doing something like this that's way more accurate more realistic more colorful and part of the reason is because they're utilizing oil Um, and in the north oil painting becomes common far earlier and with that you get a lot more of that rich color and so in the north um as we kind of click through here this one's really really popular piece mostly because it was stolen in world war ii uh, by the nazis so Um, The Ghent Altarpiece, which was in Ghent, I know, um, is a panel piece. So it's multiple panels that are supposed to be arranged together. And as you can tell, if you just look at the bottom paneling, what is different about this piece that wouldn't happen in the Italian Renaissance? See how it's a collection of crowd scene? And they're not ripped Greek boxers, right? They're just average people who are all there in like more of a communal experience. The other thing is when you see the nudity in the north, it's not this idealism of the giant ripped Greek boxer, right? It's an average person. Um, And and you see that more commonly in the north. Uh, And it's not a it's not like pleasing. Like in, in Italy, it's like, all right, these people are just huge amazing in the north it's just there it's more telling a story and that's the intent so you could almost argue that some of the northern art kind of keeps more of the remnants of the middle ages where they're telling that really strong christian themed story but they're just doing it in a more accurate and realistic way i think that's probably the best way to to put it now i'm going to show you a couple of other van eyck pieces this one's called the crucifixion and the last judgment And if you look at Van Eyck's Last Judgment on the right, you notice how different it is from Michelangelo's Last Judgment? What are some things you can clearly see that are very different? Yeah. Yeah. See how hell is half the painting? In Michelangelo's, it would just be like here. And it's not even a Christian hell. It's a Greco-Roman hell. So the way that it's portrayed is different. Who's this? God. Uh, How big is he? Really big compared to everyone else, right? So you still see elements of the Middle Ages where you have that proportionality, where people are just bigger to demonstrate power or authority. Um, In Michelangelo's piece, they're all the same size. Look, this is Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel and The Last Judgment. Here's Van Eyck next to him. Does it look a little different? If I were putting this on a short answer and saying, identify two ways in which the Italian and Northern Renaissance differed in the ways that they portrayed Christian themes or something like that. How could you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like bigger hmm? than everyone else. And also like the hell in the northern, like isn't just a small little like space in the corner like yeah. the Italian. Good. So uh, if we're trying to draw out some of the vocabulary that we were using early, humanism, secularism, uh, classicism, idealism versus realism what are some things we could identify within these pieces that use those terms yeah uh-huh it is it is very balanced uh, and symmetrical I would argue that both of them are pretty balanced and symmetrical uh, Now, I I agree with you. What you were saying is correct as far as the, the way that we're looking at the size in Michelangelo's. Everyone's relatively the same size, but they're all these giant Greek boxers. And so you could just say in Michelangelo's piece, he doesn't use proportionality in showing authority, but he does utilize the classical theme of idealism and that perfect Greek figure or Greek boxer. Whereas in the North, most people are painted as average individuals that you would see on the street on an everyday basis this is more of a crowd scene that is kind of just observing something that is happening in this scene everyone is more participating in what is going on because they are painted as equal and then i showed you when i showed you michelangelo's last judgment you have uh, saint bartholomew in here with his flayed skin you have saint lawrence over here with him being grilled alive You have have all these little stories within the piece that you can talk about as you go through. This one has one intent, to show you what's going to happen in the last judgment, and you're basically on a coin flip. You're going up or you're going down. In Michelangelo's, there's a lot of room for a lot of different questions. And eventually, maybe you might go to hell, but it doesn't look quite as bad as this hell. right? The hell on the right with Van Eyck looks a little more daunting than the hell that you see here on the left, okay? Um, now, I don't know if I showed you this the other day, but Giovanni um, and his wife, their wedding portrait, did I show you this at all? Yeah. On my little art book right there, if you open it to the first couple pages, you'll be able to find this, um, so you guys can see it in more detail. This particular piece you're going to laugh is probably one of my favorite Northern Renaissance pieces. And the reason is Van Eyck is painting this piece incredibly realistic, going at, at the people that are in the painting. But what is he also doing in here that is incredibly unique for this time period? Yeah, it is a mirror. He He reflects the entire room in a stretched, almost fisheye, Going back, so he distort stretches the mirror going back like you would look at back then because their mirrors were not like a perfect reflection; they were a little distorted. So if you look at that and look at it more in detail, he actually paints the entire room backwards. So he created like a third dimension within his painting when Masaccio is doing the Expulsion of the Garden. It's like Masaccio is just getting people where they're relatively accurate and. Van Eyck is sitting there painting the entire room and doing it twice and working with a a mirror as well, painting it back the other direction. Um, It's really, really intricate what he does. And, And this is what I'm trying to tell you. Like, Look at the difference between the North and the South around the same period. And we can't really say that the South is winning here. The North is way better. But why do you think in art history... Generally, people are very forgetful of the Northern Renaissance and they generally love the Italian Renaissance. Yeah. Sure. Like Michelangelo and da Vinci are far more well known and people are like ah, the David and Mona Lisa. And I I get that. But why else? What do you think about the themes of the two might turn people off towards the north? I'll, I'll posit this to you, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. I think that human nature is to want to feel like you can be great, and the ideal appeals to people, meaning that I would love to be that Greco-Roman boxer. Very few people want to be told that y'all are going to hell, you probably need to shape up, and this is what an average person looks like. So while the Peace on the left is probably better than the peace on the right. When we get to the way that the Italian Renaissance is remembered, it's remembered for everything that is humanism, everything that man can be. The North is remembered as kind of that group of people that are sitting there going, remember, you're still going to hell. <laughs> so it becomes so preachy that I, it, it becomes almost forgetful. And people are kind of like, eh, I'll move on. yes. Um, I I, I don't know if he didn't have great types of other work, but I do know that Van Eyck is probably one of the best painters of the 1400s in the North. I don't know much of his other work, so I would have to look through his other stuff. Um, Now, another guy that's obviously very good, and this is right around the same period, is van der Veeden, and if you look here, uh, in the South, I showed you this same theme Okay, what is the theme? Who's coming down from the cross? Jesus is coming down from the cross. In this particular painting, uh, Mary is, is fainting, and you have this kind of very emotional crowd scene. Now, in the South, this was portrayed by whom? And it's only two people in the piece of art. It's done by Michelangelo. Remember the Pieta? It's the Ma- Mary holding Jesus, and it's just that simple sculpture. It's incredibly accurate, very realistic. It, Michelangelo's sculpture looks like her dress is like falling off of her, almost like this, not falling off of her, but you see the, the wrinkle and all that kind of stuff. Van der Weyden is also doing something similar, but what makes it very northern is that this is a crowd scene, okay? You're not focusing on one or two people you're focusing on the crowd and everyone kind of being involved with the event and then also if you look at the detail here you can tell very quickly that they are just incredibly more technical at the same time as the Italians mostly because they're painting in oil Um, and oil allows you to be more vibrant with the colors um, and more precise here's Massey Uh, here's another example of what it looks like within realism domestic interior Uh, that whole thing. So this is Massey's uh, moneylender and his wife. And this is a portrait, but it shows a domestic interior. So it shows you what their house looks like so they can tell a bit of a story. Clearly, these people are moneylenders because they're literally counting money. Um, And if I show you the detail here, there's also a little mirror on this table. Now, it's very possible that the person that he painted within the mirror is actually either a relative or a dead relative that they wanted to include in the painting, that was common back then. There's actually a really common uh, portrait of Henry VIII and his wife that died after childbirth. So um, if I look at my Henry VIII wives here, here's my cheat sheet, um, you have the first wife who is um, Catherine of Aragon, he divorces her. Then he has Anne Boleyn, he beheads her. Then he has Lady Jane Seymour. Now Lady Jane Seymour gives him a son, So Henry is like, yes, finally have a legitimate son. Now he had other sons, but they weren't legitimate. So he finally gets a son and then Lady Seymour dies. Dang it. And, but Lady Jane Seymour gets painted in all the family portraits after this because he is, she is the one true wife because she gave him a son. So she just is like a ghost in the paintings forever. (laughs) Um, Which is only awkward if you're the next wife and don't worry, he's got three more. So, um, But we'll get to that next week. And you can see here in the detail, there's like the little guy just kind of hanging out in the window. And it's the same kind of concept that we saw with Van Eyck's mirror where you're utilizing things within the painting to tell more of a story. And you can see the detail in the money um, and how just incredibly intricate he's working with these things. And again, this is the same time or a little bit after the early Italian Renaissance. So the only people that are doing significant Work at this time. Well, there's that's an overstatement. This is about the same time as Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, but fresco and paintings like this are also very different. Um, I'm gonna skip through France, not because I don't like France. I don't love France. Um, And then I'm gonna skip through Germany, not because I don't like Germany. Come on, keep going through. Go, go, go. Actually, I'm not going to skip all of Germany. I'm going to stick stick with Dürer. So, earlier, someone asked if uh, Van Eyck was like Raphael. If anybody is like someone from the North and the South, Dürer is very much like the Da Vinci of the North. Dürer could do everything. Um, Now, this is his early self-portrait, one of his early self-portraits, I'm going to show you his self-portrait in 1500 and you're going to find out very quickly that Durer is learning very 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 quickly and becoming very 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 good at a very accelerated rate. Durer started at least some of his other early works are mostly woodcuts. And most woodcuts are done in relief meaning that they're within a block of wood that you can kind of you could put the woodcut on a, a wall and you'd be able to see the, the detail in the wood. Um, so if you just turned my table over on its side and then etched yourself a woodcut out of my table um, and we just put it on the wall, that would be a woodcut. So Durer is best known for probably one of those. The, the one that everyone knows is the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is incredibly uh preachy it's very much in line with the way that people saw the world at that time they, they kind of thought they were in the end times right remember when we got to the end of the middle ages and it felt like the whole world was falling apart around us uh and that is durer's subject in a lot of times the other thing that i want to point out to you is that durer always signs his paintings the same way so he tells you what year that it's made and he tells you also that he did it and it's right there. Um, he's got like a little ad that becomes his very like it's his calling card so if you can't figure out who did the work and there's no identification let's say it's just a short answer and it's a woodcut and you're like ah it's probably northern renaissance but then you find that little ad in there then you know it's durer okay and i'll show you that in all of his pieces i'll point out his signature because it is very identifiable and the reason that i say that is because in the past on an AP exam, they actually did put a piece by Durer and didn't label it. And you had to figure out some of the characteristics, but if you had figured out it was Durer, you would have been able to answer the question a little bit easier. So obviously they leave it in there because it's part of the painting uh, or the woodcut. So like I said, he's a bit of a da Vinci type because he can do multiple things well. What Durer found very quickly is that he was a very average person in the North. In the north, artists were seen as a function of something greater than themselves, actually more similar to the way that the Greeks saw their artists. The Greeks never really identified their artists as being great individuals. They felt like actually the artist was like a function of the state, meaning that they were doing the art to show how amazing Greece was. Remember at the beginning of this class, we talked about Socrates and Socrates' death and the whole moral of the story is it's not about me. It's about Greece. And that's how they saw their artists was it was, it's not about me, it's about Greece. And that's kind of how the North saw many of their artists. They didn't really have that fanfare that guys like Michelangelo, Raphael, Da Vinci had, who everybody really knew. And Durer makes a trip to the South because he wants to see what they're doing down there. And he finds out very quickly that he's a celebrity. And you see this like switch in him where he's almost just way more confident. After that, and starts making incredible work. So, um, the, the piece that comes after this is his second self portrait. You notice how much better he is getting in two years. So, two years before, this is almost like a comical piece, right? And then you get here and you're like, oh, <laughs> you're getting good. Now, this is his signature. You guys see it there in the corner, the AD. Now, this is another one of his. This is a woodcut from 1510 again i'll show you the signature there at the bottom uh woodcut is mostly in relief very small intricate details as they go through this is probably my favorite one um this one is probably about the size it's like this tall and like that wide something like that the detail in this is incredibly impressive um you can see like if if you mess up with wood you, you kind of have to just start over with a new block. You can't, like, glue the wood back on and do, try it again, right? So, um, And it's softer than marble, so you, you're having to be even more delicate when you're doing this stuff. Uh, here's more detail from the triumphal arch. So you can just see the amount of uh, storytelling he's doing in relatively small space. This is his most popular work, and you can write this one down. I would write this one down. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse is... Again, kind of very typical of the way that the North saw the world. The the North believed that Italy was going through a period of just total depravity and sin. um, And realized that this is still even before Martin Luther. Martin Luther is 20 years later. And and by the time you get to, to Martin Luther, Germany is feeling like we don't love Rome. We feel used by Rome. And then Luther comes in. And it really didn't matter what Luther said. The Germans were just ready to reject Rome. And yes, Luther had a good argument, but Germany was very ready to just kind of say, forget you guys, we'll do our own thing. And that, I think, becomes a very strong theme in the North. I'm going to skip through England, mostly because this is going to be more important for us next unit. And I'm going to just briefly go through Bosch and Brugel. So Bosch for me is probably my favorite Northern painter. That's not named Durr. So Bosch reminds me the most of someone like a Salvador Dali. You guys know who Dali is? Any art people in here? So Dali, hello, Annie. Uh, Dali is a surrealist painter in the 20th century. And... Dali liked to paint. A lot of times he would have a weird dream and then just wake up and paint. And he would paint his dream. Uh, And so a lot of his stuff becomes just really odd. Do you know those dreams that you don't tell anyone about? Dali was like, I'll tell everyone. (laughs) I'm just going to paint it and who cares? And so a lot of his stuff becomes really edgy. It's really disgusting he uses cannibalism quite a bit because he actually is living during the spanish civil war and what you find in art is that cannibalism becomes a uh, a way of describing what civil war is because if you think about it civil war is killing yourself right and so it becomes this kind of almost a good way of explaining the process of killing yourself through cannibalism um and that's how dali used it uh picasso did at times i believe um, earlier, Goya did very cannibalistic things as well in his work during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, so it becomes actually a very very common Spanish theme in art. Yeah. When you say cannibalism like symbolizing killing yourself? you mean auto cannibalism? Or... Um, I mean, I can show you Dali's stuff later so you could see it, but that's a different lecture five months down the road when we get to the surrealism stuff. Um, So Bosch, the reason I bring up Dolly during Bosch is that Bosch doesn't fit the constraints of the the art time. He just doesn't care. He does it his own way. Uh, At times, it looks almost cartoonish. At times, it looks like he's just throwing things together. Um, He loves the idea that people are just going to hell. And so he's going to show you your route to hell, essentially. There's one piece called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is just this like giant circle of the seven deadly sins. And by the end of it, you're just kind of finding your way to hell, Um, which he's incredibly critical of the Italians and the way that they're living their lives. So you'll see like nuns that are like, or you'll see a a nun that's got like a pig's body or vice versa, where you have like a nun's body and a pig's head or something like that. And they're being like flushed down a tube through like a bird-headed judge, that's expelling them into hell or something like that uh so it's really kind of fun when you look at bosch and he just is playful with his critique of the south i guess you could say so this is his most famous piece it's called the garden of earthly delights uh it is also in the art book that i have pass it if you guys want to pass that around and if you can find it um you can see it now it's It's housed in the Prado. At least I think it still is. The last time I saw it was in the Prado. It's about the size of my desk, the front of my desk. And then there's two little uh, side panels on the side of it. Um, And that's the size of the Garden of Earthly Delights. You can't see the side panels on this particular one. The detail, and this is why uh, I kind of gave you that description earlier. This is within the Garden of Earthly Delights. And it's this judge at the end that's like consuming people and then like i said like expelling them through a little capsule down into hell right so um if you find it in that book i promise like it's very interesting uh to see what bosch does but like i said this this looks nothing like anyone else at this time right he looks totally unique and i would argue that dali is very similar in the 20th century and actually looks very similar to some uh bosch's paintings and this is also bosch this is called the the temptation of saint anthony's Uh, Or St. Anthony, which is uh, a common piece that people pull out for him as well. The last guy I want to go over before we move on is Peter Brugel. And I like Brugel because he characterizes a lot of the things within the the Northern Renaissance that we've already been talking about. And so he becomes a very easy person to identify Northern Renaissance characteristics in their pieces. He does a lot of uh, pastoral scenes meaning that it's more of a, a wide open landscape. He does a lot of uh, crowd scenes. So you see in his Nederlandish proverb, uh, uh, just Amsterdam essentially, and what Amsterdam probably looked like in that period. Um, he's got a really good piece called The Parable of the Blind Leading the Blind. Um, and you have just a bunch of people that are blind, can't see anything, and they're walking with each other hand in hand, and they're walking into the ditch, which is literally a proverb. Um, so it's, a very preachy kind of Bible story of this group of people that are just leading themselves into disaster. Um, And so you see those kind of things within his art. So I think it makes it easy to identify it as Northern Renaissance. I've seen his pieces a number of times on the AP exam. So the AP really likes him because I think it characterizes the Northern Renaissance and some of the ideas of Christian humanism. So when I click through it, I think you'll be able to... uh, pick things out relatively quickly. I will go back to this slide in a second. I'm just going to show you the pieces of art and then uh, go back. So this is one of his early works called The Tower of Babel. This is a story from the uh, Bible as well um, about iniquity and God's judgment. You have the parable of the blind leading the blind, which is the one I was talking about earlier. You could write this one down because it is a good example of realism, uh, a crowd scene, a landscape scene it's showing you an everyday average town in the north so it kind of is hitting checking a lot of boxes in regards to the northern renaissance parable of the blind leading the blind 1568 brugel this is one of the other ones i was talking about the niederlandish proverb this is probably what a portion of amsterdam looked like at the time you have uh, or at least a small town in, in the Netherlands if it's not Amsterdam. But it is a port city. Um, as you can tell, at the top of the painting, there's an, a merchant ship coming in. Uh, you also have a very middle and lower class painting where you see peasant life as opposed to the upper class and the rich. We saw nothing like this in the Italian Renaissance, right? Everything in the Italian Renaissance is like one or two people. If it's a big crowd scene, they all look like Greek boxers. Like, this looks nothing like the Italian... Versions of things, and then here's some more Bruegel: Hunters in the Snow, Landscape, Average People, Average Day. Um, very different than what you'd see in Italy, and same with this one. So you just have a, a theme that's that's significantly different in the north. If I gave you this in a short answer, I promise on Monday I'm probably going to have a short answer that's going to compare the north and the, the Italian movements. I'm not going to promise they're both going to be art. One of them might be. A piece of writing from Italy and the other one might be art from the north and you just got to find the differences in what they're portraying so in the south what's important to them humanism classicism the individual secularism in the north what's important to them they're preachy it's christian humanism average middle class life landscapes domestic interiors so There's specific differences between the two, but they're happening at the same time, okay? And I think they do a good job of resembling the culture of the South and the culture of the North at the time, okay? I'm going to go back to that uh, slide on Brugel, but that'll end our Northern Renaissance uh, unit, which is obviously a little smaller than the Italian. And because we are done with that, that means that the next time we get back into lecture will be be the beginning of the reformation all right